0: If you'll turn with me, um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, but then also Psalm 4 and 5. So we're doing a series right now on the Lord's Prayer that comes from Matthew chapter 6. And we're shifting to a new section of the Lord's Prayer this morning. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 4 and 5 also to illustrate this petition. And the reason why we're doing this is because you both need this personally and we need this as a church, kind of where we are as a church. You need prayer. Because as we um, have seen, if you're going to live life to the full, if you're going to experience all that Christ wants to do, if you want to experience the power of the gospel transformed, unleashed in your life, there's a couple things you have to experience. There's certain things you need to know. You need to know the truth. The truth will set you free. There's certain things you need, to, you need to feel. You need to have your heart engaged and your, your soul and your emotions um, come alive. And then you need to be obedient. You need to obey him. And probably the key to keeping your soul fresh and your emotions healthy is prayer and praise. And so really, it's not an overstatement to say that prayer really is the key for you to experience everything that God wants you to experience in life. It's really the key for, that's going to fuel or pa- empower you to become the person that you, uh, that you want to be. It's the key to everything you want to be and to become. And prayer and praise are the pathway to keep our souls fresh, our hearts engaged. One of the hardest uh, battles we fight is that our hearts can become disengaged and cold towards the people, the places, the things that they need to be um, connected to. And so prayer is uh, the pathway to that. So we're going through this to ask the Lord to help us. In one sense, we all know this. You know, it's fascinating. A Barnum poll recently said that more Americans uh, pray, uh, admit to praying on a semi-regular basis, than actually believe that God exists. So you think that, like, instinctively, we have almost like this primal pension to know that we need to pray. And what the Bible does is it gives us two primary tools to help us learn how to pray well. It gives us the Lord's Prayer, which provides a framework, and then gives us the book of Psalms, which kind of puts clothes on the framework or gives us petitions, prayers for every season. Every situation we can ever enter into, the Psalms give us uh, a prayer for that. If you remember the old Apple commercial where, like, everything you could ever imagine, they'd be like, there's an app for that. Uh, In the Psalms, there's a prayer for that. Like every situation, every emotional experience you could ever have, there's a prayer for that. So we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, and it's important to remember that the Lord's Prayer is not a mantra. It's not something you're just supposed to repeat um, without thinking about it. It's a, it's a framework. It's a mental model. It's a framework. And one of the most powerful things you can get in life are these mental frameworks that then you can then put everything that you experience on top of. And that's what it is. It's a, it's a framework that's to kind of organize, give you organizing concepts for how you're supposed to pray. So we need this personally, but we also need this as a church, because one of the things we want to see uh, in the Lord's Prayer for our church is this is probably one of the closest places Jesus ever gives to things like, here's a mission statement, and then here are kind of my strategic priorities, your core values, here's your mission, here's your values, these are the things I want my family to be about. The church is the family of God, and it begins, this is the, the family values, and the first three petitions, in essence, start with the why. This is what I want you to be focused on, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. We, we exist to hallow his name in worship, expand his kingdom with our work, and do his will as his joyful servants. That's, that's who we are. That's our, that's our why. And then the next three petitions really give us the almost the how or the what. What are the things we should, how do we do these things? How do we honor his name? How do we expand his kingdom? How do we do his will? What are those things? And kind of the phrase we want to use is, the phrases for these next three petitions are, this is in essence how Jesus wants to create a certain culture in his family. You know, what's his family culture? You know, every family has its own culture, which is kind of the unique way of, Uh, that that family operates and often you don't even realize that this is like your family culture until someone from the outside of it comes in and says hmm that's that's kind of weird why do you guys always do that so do what that's just that's just how you do things how else do you do it that's because it's just worked itself into its family culture, and these three positions petitions give the family culture for Christ's family, and uh, I mean culture, it is kind of a hard to define kind of thing, you ever that phrase where it's like either, you know, asking someone what's their culture's like, is like asking a fish to explain water? Most of the fish will say, well, what's water? Because uh, they're so immersed in it, you don't, even, you don't even know. But that's what culture is. But these things, Jesus wants us to take a step back and say, all right, how can we uh, intentionally foster this type of culture? And this request that we're going to look at this morning is, uh, in essence, it's the, the fourth request, but it's, it's the first one that starts to become oriented towards us. So the first three are your name, your kingdom, your will. And then the next kind of three are then give us, forgive us, lead us. So let's look. We're going to look at this request to give us this day our daily bread. So that's a request. And uh, what I want to see is that this request is designed to create a culture of generous dependence. Part of the culture for his family is a culture of generous dependence. So we're going to look at that line, give us this day our daily bread, pull out some implications from the request, and then we're going to look at Psalm 3 and 4 that illustrate this request. And what we'll see is first the request for dependence, the rhythm of dependence, and the result of dependence. So let's look first at the request, the request for dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. Isn't it interesting here that... Uh, The first thing is just notice that Jesus asks us, or really tells, commands, commands us to ask him. We're told to ask. The first thing is give us. And just pause and think about how, you know, there's just certain things that you have to ask for. There's certain things he wants you to ask for. There's actually certain things that it's dangerous for him to give you without you asking for. Because then you'll be you'll fall into to the delusion that you somehow did it. It was your skill or your savvy that brought it brought it about. And so the first just reality is he wants to create a type of people who ask, who are dependent on him. And you think about just in your life in general, asking for things can be pretty difficult. Why is asking for things so hard? Um, you know, one of the I was about to say trials and tribulations of being Cynthia. Uh, But that's a little overly dramatic. She doesn't have it that bad. But one of the trials and tribulations of me and Cynthia is that there was a significant season in our marriage where I refused to ask for like directions or really like where things were in stores. So we would often like go to a store and my logic was if they have not laid out the store in such a way where a semi-rational person can look around and find what they need, I don't want to buy it there anyway. (laughs) You know what actually cured me of that was having children. <laughs> Taking four, four toddlers to Walmart. Now I ask for everything. I just show up to the sweet lady at the front who's a greeter with my list and say, hey, can, can you just like just help me go get these things? I mean, I don't think there's anything I've ever done as hard as that. Like you see the movie Free Solo where they're bragging about the, the kid who like scaled the wall, the unclimbable wall with no harnesses. I'm not impressed. I'd like to see him take my kids to Walmart and bring them back safely. That would be worth a documentary. So that cured me of my refusal to want to ask for drinks. But if you think about it, oftentimes we don't ask for things just because of our pride. It's our own pride. But speaking of kids, often one of the hardest things to teach them is the posture of appropriate asking. Because so often they'll come and they'll be like, I'm hungry. And then you, you respond, well, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm Ben. What are you asking? Is that the way you ask? I think one of the things we say most often at this stage is, is that how you ask? And one of the things we're trying to uh, foster in them is where there's not a sense of entitlement or there's not a demanding sense of grasping but where there's a, a, an, an, a sense of generosity and a sense of um, just not entitlement. We had a little saying, you know, think about it. In essence, demands don't go up. Demands come down, but requests go up. And this is one of the things that the Lord is teaching us. We ask. Um, and really, it's not safe. This is why this is so important to have this petition after the one we missed for the hurricane. Your will be done. Because your will be done places us in a posture of submission. And then only then is it safe to really start asking for things. So we have to ask, but notice it's also daily. Give us this day our... Daily bread. And, and bread is one of the great themes that runs throughout the whole Bible. And if you were with us when we preached through the Gospel of John, one of the things we saw there, that John, over and over, he loves to take physical things and teach spiritual truths. And one of the most common things that he uses is your daily, necess- what does your body need to thrive is the same thing your soul needs to thrive. So your body needs water, it needs food, and so does your soul. Your soul needs living water, which is a refreshment of the spirit. It needs the food, which is the word of the Lord. Nobody lives on bread alone, but they live. You actually live from every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Or the great story in Exodus where the Lord was going to teach his people that it's he is the one who provides for them daily. And so they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and he would provide manna and manna was only good for that day. So it really didn't matter how like big your hands were or how skilled you were as a manna collector. You couldn't hoard it because it would go bad. You could only get what you needed for that day. And one of the things he wanted to teach them is that in a very real sense, you can't plan your future. You have to joyfully enter into daily dependence for his faithful provisions and one of the things he wanted to teach them is that depend we're not just dependence dependent in down times so we're not just dependent on him when there's no bread but when we have a whole bunch of bread we're good says so you actually need dependence as a posture of the heart that's daily and then there's bread it's bread the necessities of life. You know, we have a complex relationship in our world with bread. Because for many of us, bread is like, it's carbs, ah, or it's gluten, stay away. And we have a complex relationship. Most of the world, you know, like bread, like wheat belly, you know, our bread, this is not your grandfather's bread. It's been genetically modified and all that. Well, that's not really, the, the point here is that he's going to provide the basics of what you need for survival. His basic faithful provision. And one of the things that's interesting here is it also means that you can have a sense of contentment if you have the basics. The basics. You can have deep contentment with the basics in life. That's one of the questions worth asking ourselves continually. Do we? Do we have the basics? And then are we content? Charles Spurgeon, who was a minister in London, 1800s, in the South Side of London, a really poor area. One of his uh, kind of most faithful deacons in the church and one of the most godly men in the church was also um, extremely, extremely poor. And but Spurgeon loved the way he would he would welcome people into his home, and he'd often try and lay out the best he had, and it often was um, meager to say the least. Uh, And by the way he would pray, he would say, all this and Jesus too. All this and Jesus too. It's all uh, a gift from his hand. He had the basics, and so he was content and joyful. But then notice also that word, hour, Our. And part of the, the, the promise is provision, not just for your own necessities, but the communities. The assumption is that you'll receive bread and then share it. It's our, it's joint, it's communal. The assumption is an open table that we share bread with together. You know, Luther, Martin Luther said about this is there's a strong social dimension. That every time you're praying for our daily bread, you're actually praying that the economy would flourish you're praying that there would be, um, you know, no shortage for the basic necessities. You're praying that there be no hoarding of bread. there be no exploiting of the bread. You're praying against injustices of all kinds. You know, you think about it, in the ancient world, the only really things, so like you, you were king, Caesar controlled two things. He controlled the food supply and the army. As long as you had those two things, you were king. It's one of the reasons like with uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra and that kind of whole thing, the whole point of that is that Egypt was the breadbasket of the empire. You control Egypt, you control the kingdom. And so one of the things when we're praying that for our daily bread, we're actually praying for a just society, good economy, no hoarding, no exploitation. So, what type of culture does praying this daily create? One of the things we're going to say is, it wants to create in people a generous dependence. Because we're dependent on Him, but then generous with what we uh, receive. So, how can you foster that in your life? Look at Psalms. So, flip over to Psalm 4 and 5. So, I think these Psalms really illustrate two things both the rhythm of dependence and then the results of dependence. So what are the rhythms? And then what are the results? So just hear Psalm 4 and 5. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now the setting, so you can look at Psalm 3. Psalm 3 to 7 are kind of like a narrative block. And Psalm 3 sets up when David is fleeing from Absalom. So this is David's darkest day, who the kids are going to learn about God who keeps his promises, uh, and he becomes king, but then his darkest day is still ahead of him in the st- where they are in the story. And this is where he's fleeing from his son, Absalom, who's trying to usurp the throne, and he's in the wilderness on the run for his life, and the Psalms from 3 to 7 are all Psalms uh, that were, were in essence written during that season. So as you hear this, this is a man who's entered into the darkest season of his life he's on the run for his life he's being hounded he's being hunted uh, and so here kind of hear that in the background oh men how long shall my honor be turned to shame how long will you who love vain words and seek after lies but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself the Lord hears when I call him Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I pray, O Lord, in the morning you will hear my voice in the morning. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And then actually, well, we'll keep going. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. For the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter into your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth, and their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongues. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall away by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover them with favor as with a shield. So the first... Series of psalms are uh, pattern-setting. They're setting a pattern for you. And Eugene Peterson has this fabulous book called "Answering God" about the way these these psalms set up how we should pray. So Psalm one sets up the whole goal of being like a well-watered tree planted by streams of water, so that you're always fruitful. And then two sets up kind of the great battle between the Lord's anointed His Messiah and and the world. And then three through seven are kind of moving you to how do you pray in. The The darkest times of your life. And four and five are really setting up this cycle of evening and then morning prayer, this rhythm. That no matter what situation you're in, what's happening to you, there's a rhythm of evening and morning prayer. And it's echoing back to, to creation, to Genesis chapter 1. So you have brought men's and women's Bible studies. We're looking at seeing Jesus in Genesis chapter 1. And when you read Genesis 1, the creation account, what you have is God is moving into the area. And, and Genesis 1, 2 gives the, the problem. The earth is formless, void, and without light, darkness darkness covers so no form and it's void it's empty Uh, it's chaotic it's empty and it's dark and then there's this rhythmic flow of God speaks God makes God sees and it was and then there's this rhythm of and it was evening and then morning so this beautiful it's this rhythm that then enters into the chaos and brings order and that's the very thing we all need you know, if we're honest, it's not just the p- primordial earth that was chaotic. Our own minds and souls and hearts can be chaotic. I mean, our emotions can be this unstable uh, dashing up and down. Our thoughts can run uh, riot. I have a friend who talks about the monkey in his head where it feels like his thoughts are just bouncing around like this uh, insane monkey. And then our appetites can always be running, never fulfilled or satisfied. And even when we try our best to be our very best, it seems like it only at best lasts about 10 minutes. And then Why? And then there's this powerful rhythm where God comes into the chaos and brings order. And it happens through through the rhythm. When he speaks, it comes rhythmically. There's morning. Notice verse four or chapter four is all about in peace I will lie down at night. Evening prayer. And then chapter five is what happens when I rise. I rise. Chapter five, verse three is really the key verse of chapter five. Oh, Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And one of the things I just want you to notice about the rhythm is in order to experience full spiritual life through praying and through praise, is you actually need both of these things. You need the structured rhythm, and then you need, you in essence need structure and spontaneity. Or you need order and ardor. You need form and you need freedom. You have to have both. They go together. You see that in verse one, give ear to my words. So my prayer is gonna be well-arranged, orderly, poetic, intentional words, but then consider and hear my groanings. See, real prayer has both. It has actual structure form of formal words, and then it has just a groaning of the heart where it just groans. And you have both of these. In Psalm 5, 3, notice in the morning, you'll hear my voice in the morning. It's this interesting phrase. I prepare a sacrifice. It's actually, literally you could say, I, I, I lay out the orderly arrangement. So this word is for orderly arrangement. And it's used in three different contexts in the Old Testament. One is for sacrifice. So on the sacrifice, they, you know, you kind of slaughter the animal. And then the priest would lay out the different parts on the altar because they would then be used for different things. And really, our most kind of natural analogy is like, if you ever seen like a real grill master who can lay out all types of different things on the grill and have them all be arranged in such a way where they cook perfectly, that's similar. This word's also used for generals who, when they would arrange their troops to get them ready for battle, and it's also used for accountants how they would arrange um, their accounts so the, the kingdom could flourish financially. So it's this orderly arrangement. But what's interesting, he says, this is what prayer is. Before I pray, I need to actually orderly arrange all of these things. We were watching this uh, thing, this master class show with this master uh, French pastry chef And, uh, so we were watching it and this is another one of Cynthia's trials and tribulations. I pull up things like that, hoping she'll, um, want to try and experiment with the master pastry chef is, is cooking. And, uh, he was, it was really interesting. He gave a French word. I won't even try and say it because I just won't go down that road. And, uh, but he gave this word that describes how, so the first time he ever cooked for his girlfriend, um, she got mortified because he came in and he used every bowl she had in the house. And what he would do, he would lay everything out and he put every ingredient properly proportioned into the bowl. And then he just kind of look and it's all spread out, ready to go. That's orderly arrangement. And that's actually what David is saying. I do with my prayers so, for that, lay them in this orderly arrangement, but then it has to be fueled with this life. Notice, answer me in chapter four when I call, I cry out to you, hear me. So, there's both of these things, and we need both longing, size, and then order and arrangement. The basic rhythm that God gave down at Sinai uh, 3,500 years ago for the rhythm of dependence for his people was morning and evening prayer, weekly worship. And then three annual festivals where you come together to celebrate. That's a pretty good rhythm of how we stay fresh. Morning and evening prayer, weekly worship, annual festivals. It's one of the reasons we do a certain ordered liturgy where we want the service to have a certain structure to give that form. And then our desire is to ask the spirit to breathe life always continually into it. That's so why our prayer every single week is that you'll encounter the risen Christ through his word and his spirit. So you're walking through the different pieces, but then encounter him. How can you develop the rhythm of dependence in your life? You know, you look at David's situation, and it's, it's really a marvel. You, you see him saying some of these things, and it's just a marvel. Like, how could he get emotionally to a place where he could say these kind of things? I mean, at this stage, you think about it. His, uh, his future is uncertain. His name is being publicly slandered. His family has shattered. His life's work is on the verge of disintegrating in front of his face. His home is in jeopardy, and he's running for his life. It's like, well, David, how's it going? <laughs> it's like, other than that, how'd you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln? It's not the kind of question you, you ask. And so here's David in one of the darkest situations of his life, and then hear some of the things that he says. Or in, even in that situation, why do you think he then recommits himself to morning and evening prayer? This is what I will do in the evening. Here's the things I'm going to do. Look at all the, there's, there's clear things in chapter 4, verse 4. Be angry. So I've, there's a lot I could be angry for right now, but don't sin. Be angry. Don't sin. Ponder in your heart on your bed. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. These are the things I'm going to commit to in the evening. Then in the morning, the one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out, prepare the sacrifice. I am going to prepare and watch. And I think one of the things that David is teaching us is this type of dependent prayer is not resignation. It's not just throwing up our hands and say, "Oh, woe is me. There's nothing I can do. I guess I'll just pray about it." But actually prayer is the most powerful form of recapturing agency that you can experience everything in david's life is spiraling out of control and so what he says the one thing i know i can control is i will pray in the morning and i will pray in the evening i will take back control of these things and so often when our entire life is spiraling out of control and there's so many things we don't know what to do there's there's a few basic things that we do know what to do we can do this and i think that's one of the things he's doing i will do this you think about in your own life. How are the ways when you feel like things are slipping out of your control, what do you do to try and get a sense of stability? You think about like girls who wrestle with um, eating disorders. Often it's not an image issue. Very often it's a control issue. Here's the one thing in my life that I can take control of. Or you think about, you know, maybe one of the reasons you are obsessively organized your closet is because that's the one thing in life You can take control of. I mean, I just wonder here in David's life, you remember he's one of history's greatest human leaders and he's being confronted by the undeniable fact of his own failure and there's no way he can wiggle around it. And so what does he do? He commits to morning and evening prayer and then notice the results. Uncertain future, name being publicly slandered, family shattered. What are the results? First, uh, four results that come up. As the four results is he's joyful, restful, watchful and then hospitable. Notice joyful in verse seven of chapter four. "You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound." Do you remember an agricultural world, it was literally feast or famine. Uh, um, and so the times when the harvest would come in was the time you were feasting. That was your time of celebration and joy. And he says, this is a supernatural joy, a joyfulness. And look at chapter 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So one of the things that the results of this dependence, this daily dependence, is it creates a supernatural joy. You know, one of the things we tell the kids, anybody can be happy when they win, Anybody can be happy when they're on top. The real challenge is, can you still be joyful when someone else wins? How can you maintain your joy, uh, not because of your circumstances, but in spite of your circumstances? And one of the great gifts of the gospel is that it can give you a joy so strong and so stable that circumstances can't touch. And that's what David experienced here, this strong joy. But then notice in chapter 4, verse 8, it's not just, he's not just joyful. There's also a restful calmness. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. So even though his outer world is chaotic, one of the gifts of this type of prayer is an inner world that's stable and peaceful, restful, An inner calm that no matter how chaotic things are out there, there's peace in here. That's the kind of thing, you know, I read that that kind of joy, that kind of peace. Don't you want that kind of thing? Don't you want to be around people who have that kind of thing? He's joyful. He's restful. But then notice he's also watchful in chapter 5, verse 3. Oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. I now become, I, I eagerly anticipate what you will do, how you will respond, how you will provide. I'm alert. I'm eager. Who can I bless? How can I be attentive to your mercy and your grace? And then cycling back to the theme of the Lord's Prayer, I think one of the other things that he doesn't necessarily highlight in these psalms, but one of the results is that you then become hospitable. You can really see that in another psalm where he's walking through the valley of the shadow. In Psalm 23, where even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, because His rod uh, and His staff they comfort me. He leads me to still waters. He's going to feed. He's going to provide. And then you remember how it ends: He provides for me a banqueting table in the presence of my enemies. So he provides this remarkable feast, and then I become generous and hospitable about it. So those four things, uh, daily dependent prayer can make you a type of person who's joyful, who's restful, who's watchful, and who's hospitable. So one of the questions is, how can we become people? How can we become a church that's marked by such generous dependence? You know, the great beauty and the gift of being dependent on the spirit, if you look through and as you try and go forward with the top three requests of the Lord's prayer to uh, hallow his name, expand his kingdom, to always do his will, there's a certain energy and activity you need. But then you have to always remind yourself that we're utterly and completely dependent on him. The way he does all of those things is not through our own skill and our own savvy, but he does it through his grace and his mercy. And one of the things Jesus is going to tell his disciples that I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's not hyperbole. He means it. And one of the greatest lessons we can ever learn as we try and follow him is that he means that. And one of the greatest gifts he can ever give to us is um, opportunities to really learn how dependent we are on him. You know, for Israel, one of the primary tools he used to create dependence in their heart was he sent them into the wilderness. And, you know, for us, one of the primary tools he'll use to create dependence, daily dependence, is send us into the wilderness. You have to always remember whatever humbles you can't hurt you if it humbles you it'll take you to a place of dependence where you need to be so anything you experience that humbles you it can't hurt you so everything david is experiencing right now for a leader of his caliber would have been so remarkably humiliating i mean we think david like there is he he could write poetry like shakespeare and then he was a military leader like caesar or alexander the great you often don't find people who can do either of those things much less both of them. And so everything he's experiencing right now would have been so humbling. And yet, what humbles you can't hurt you because it turns him into a person of dependence. Think about I did my dissertation on Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a British pastor who was he was trained as a medical doctor and then left the uh, medicine and became a a pastor in Wales and then in London. He was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. And uh, when he left medicine, he actually was, uh, he was an assistant to Lord Horder, who was the most famous physician in the British Isles. And it was actually somewhat of a scandal and the papers were writing about it. And you, I mean, could you imagine like you know, front page news, a doctor leaves medical school so he can go to, to become a preacher? I mean, nobody cared about that now. But um, he was on a train. He was going around preaching and causing kind of quite a stir. And it was just his uh, powerful preaching and all these things. He was becoming very quickly, becoming very famous. And he was actually on a train and sitting behind him on the train. He overheard four other preachers talking about him. But they didn't know he was sitting there. And they were talking about, well, have you heard about this physician from Harley Street who's coming around barnstorming the whole countryside? They're going to this. And he's kind of listening. And they're talking about his ministry. And then one of them says, ah, but I don't think he's been humbled yet. And then all the three of them just went, mm. And then he, he, he actually took the lesson. And God used that moment to actually help humble him because the reality is we can either be humble or be humbled. And uh, he, the Lord used that, but he knew, all right, what, um, if it humbles me, it can't hurt me because it's going to make me dependent. So there'll be times in your life where you feel like everything is falling apart and lean into those. They're not wasted if they make you dependent. And so the next question is, how can this kind of create a culture of both dependence and genuine hospitality? Because one of the key aspects of the gospel is that before we were brought into Christ's family, we were strangers. To Christ's family. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were outcast. And then by his grace and mercy, he brought us in. And so we then demonstrate that type of openness and hospitality. So every time we help someone feel welcome as they come here on Sunday morning, we're demonstrating that. Every time we open up our hearts and open up our homes, we're demonstrating that. So what would it be like for you to live in a culture of this type of generous hospitality? Don't you want to be the type of person that can be joyful despite circumstances, that you can be um, hospitable, that you can be uh, restful and watchful, eager at expecting him to do things? You know, I was thinking about this week, what type of culture do we actually, what is our culture really like in the world? What type of world are we actually living and swimming in? And I think one of the key One of the key phrases that comes back to my mind over and over is we live in a culture of ambient anxiety. That anxiety is just the background noise, the ambient anxiety. And if you think about it, I think we live in a sea of things that can cause anxiety battered by different cultural currents of self-aggrandizement, self-assertion, winds of judgment and negative scrutiny, constantly hitting up against us, the waves of criticism, the waves of guilt, the waves of self-justification. And every day you kind of have to navigate the demands of a very touchy world, a very active devil, and then your own sinful tendencies. So what's it like to enter into a world where the environment's different? The power of the gospel and the glory and the goal of the church is to be a type of community where you're entering into a different type of place with a different environment, a different atmosphere. And when grace becomes the atmosphere you live in, the air you breathe, then everything around you changes. And you become less aware of what's wrong with the world because that's obvious. You become less focused on what's wrong with you, because let's be honest, there's plenty. And then, But you become more aware of what's right with Christ, which is endless. And those are the type of people we want to become and be. So let's pray and ask the Lord to make that happen.